I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. You find that in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 6. We continue in the exposition of Mark's Gospel. And this morning, coming to verses 1 through 6 of Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Then he, Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could not do, uh, now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went out, uh, then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Do you have memories and stories of family reunions? If you do a Google search for movies about family reunions, family holidays, family vacations, and so forth, you will get overloaded with listings. You probably know some of them. Maybe some of them are your favorites. So the family reunion has become a stock-in-trade theme for stereotyped characters exaggerating personal conflicts, sibling rivalries, baffoon fathers, dominating matriarchs, eccentric relatives, secret family intrigues, and taboo relationships. And while all this drama is often spun into comedy, trying to hide the real tragedy. Uh, interesting in uh, Mark chapter 6, we'll get to some of this in the story of King Herod and his family and the martyrdom of John the Baptist. But we continue on this morning in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 6. Remember, we've said the Gospel of Mark is straight talk about Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 6, the Gospel conflict in this sinful world. And we're told that the Gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief, disbelief, false belief, and weak belief. But saving faith is In the gospel of Jesus Christ, saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. So we turn this morning to the first story, verses 1 through 6, and that is the conflict that the gospel brings against unbelief in this sinful world. Unbelief is expressed by common rejections. Uh, This is, in many ways, a sad story when we begin to read it, but we don't want to be left in that, that sense of sadness. There's more to it than just the sadness. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus returns to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And he returns there with his disciples following him, which is significant. Now, there are some uh, who ponder and debate over Jesus returning to Nazareth here. Uh, In other words, did he go there more than once? Because we have in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have accounts of Jesus going uh, to Nazareth. Uh, Some think that he only went to Nazareth one time. Others think that uh, there was more than one visit, and uh, like Jesus cleansing the temple, there's the same debate. Did Jesus cleanse the temple once, or did he cleanse the temple twice? Once at the beginning of his public ministry, and once at the end. Now, I view the cleansing of the temple to be two two times. 
I think there were two events, one at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and again uh, at the close of his public ministry. I also believe that Jesus went to Nazareth more than once. I think the account that we have here is at least a second visit uh, to Nazareth in his public ministry. Uh, And there's some reasons why I believe that. So I believe that two incidents could take place uh, uh, more than once, or, or the incidents in this place could take place more than once. I think it's reasonable to consider that Jesus did return to Nazareth as his hometown. Uh, We're told here that he even still had family living there, that uh, he had family sisters who still lived in Nazareth. Well, also the disciples accompanying Jesus and his Sabbath preaching and teaching in the synagogue tell us this was more than a family visit. This was not just a family reunion. Jesus went there intentionally to minister the gospel. And that brings us then to the second uh, consideration as we move on in chapter 2, and that is among the many hearers, they were astonished, they were surprised, they were stunned at Jesus' words, and various responses were elicited and circulated. And these responses are given to us from the people who were hearing him preach and teach. Where did this man get these things? Because Jesus was teaching and preaching them with authority and telling them things that were not from common sources. What Jesus was saying was different than the content that they normally heard. And, and you know of these things before. You know how Jesus challenged them uh, from the false traditions and the, the binding of conscience that was often put upon them by the scribes and the Pharisees and in the synagogue uh, as those would get up and try to um, weigh down the people with these things. Jesus had some very sharp words to say about that. And we're told repeatedly that people were astounded at what Jesus had to say. It was fresh. It was new. It was soul lifting. It was hopeful. And here again, people were astounded at what Jesus was saying. It wasn't from the common sources of what they heard. And so they said, what kind of wisdom is this which is given to him? Uh, And such mighty works are performed by his hands. They noted there was deep wisdom and there was demonstrated powers that set Jesus apart. There's something different going on here. He's something apart from man or more than human. What is going on here? And not only by Jesus being from Nazareth, uh, as that he was returning to his hometown and he was known there, but we're told that he didn't do mighty works there. We'll get to that in a moment. But his reputation preceded him. Here's the hometown boy who's coming home. And they're saying, we've heard about these mighty works that he's done performed by his hands. Uh, from the surrounding area. Uh, you remember how Jesus was active in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee. We've read previously in the first five chapters of, of mighty things that were going on and how his reputation spread and vast multitudes were gathering to him. We'll even hear more about that as we go on in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Capernaum was only about 20 miles from Nazareth. It's like hopping in the car and driving up to the Mall of Georgia. And so the word had filtered back And Jesus came back, though he was from Nazareth, and yet people are puzzled and disturbed. And as we go on in the story, we find out why. This initial astonishment and the interest in Jesus' message and testimonies offered encouragement. There seems to be hope here for the reception of the gospel as Jesus comes back to Nazareth and is preaching and teaching uh, in the synagogue there. And people are beginning to ask these questions and being interested in, in who he is because we thought we knew him. Uh, he was here among us. He lived here. But I want you to remember Jesus' parable of the sower. Remember a couple of chapters back in chapter 4? Jesus told about the mysteries of the kingdom of God and he told the parable of the sower of the seed and of the ground. 
So when we come to verse 3, we hear common rejections from sin-hardened hearts choking out the word. This is what Jesus said in the parable of the sower. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. So in verse 3, we hear these people expressing these very things, choking out the word of God, the word that Jesus is and the word that Jesus was preaching. They were offended at him. These are the ones who hearing the word, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things choke out the word. This is what they said in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? Now, we have more of a specialized view of a carpenter. Uh, the term carpenter here means more of a technician, of a builder, uh, of a builder and an artisan. He may work with wood and stone, and he was a general contractor, a builder. The home folks were familiar with Jesus and with his family by trade. They knew that uh, this was a family of tradesmen who were artisans, who were builders. They also knew Jesus as neighbors. He lived there for 30 years or about or thereabouts. And also consider that Jesus knew these people in various associations throughout his 30 years there. That's sort of between the lines here, and I think it's easy to overlook. Not only do these people recognize and say, we know this guy, this is the carpenter. This is the guy who lived here and, and, and did jobs for us, or he was our neighbor. He, uh, they bought uh, bread from the baker or, or, or in various associations. They were a part of this community. For those many years, and they recognized and knew Jesus in that capacity. But think about this. Jesus also knew them. People he had interaction with. You know, growing up, maybe there were friends and associates and community uh, associations that you had that your parents uh, knew. You didn't perhaps know them as personally, but you knew them as friends of your parents or the people that you did business with. I grew up in a small town where uh, you went to, before there were big chain grocery stores, you went to the mom and pop, or you went to, um, I remember a, um, a, a, a place where we would go get a hamburger and a fried pie and ice cream. I did that every Friday before the football game, uh, before, when it was a home game, we didn't have to travel. Uh, me and a couple of my friends, we would go to this particular little uh, mom and pop uh, burger stand and we would get a, a hamburger and a, a, a fried pie and an ice cream. That was our uh, pregame meal before we had uh, the football game. And so I knew people in that community as well as extended family, not just uh, in Jesus' case, there were brothers and sisters within that family, but there were also extended family, cousins, and uh, just other acquaintances. So I think it's valuable for us to see this and to recognize this in terms of Jesus was coming back to a town that he grew up in. And there were people that knew him and people that he knew. And yet, there's a sad turn of events here. Um, I want you to contemplate something. This to me is mind warping. The contrast of Jesus incarnate, the Son of God, as the creator of the universe and beyond. He is the creator uh, come to us incarnate in the flesh, the God-man. He's the creator of the universe and beyond. He tells us he's the heavenly mansion builder. I'm going to build a mansion for a place for you. It's going to be spectacular like no palace on earth can even begin to represent. And he's the architect of the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is from above. Think about all those psalms that reference 
how he, he uh, cast out the ocean in a span, like he can hold the ocean in the span of his hand, and these anthropomorphisms that talk about God as creator. And here we have Jesus growing up in this community as a carpenter and a builder in the, the shop and in the home of Joseph, a carpenter and a builder. Think of the humility in his earthly uh, humiliation where Jesus worked with his hands and with his tools as a local builder fashioning yokes. And he talks about his yoke is easy. And how he came to fashion those oak yokes and those yokes needed to fit and to work on the oxen or, or the beast of burden in a way that would allow them to, to continue their work and not cause them damage. So he was a, an artisan who fashioned yokes and plows. He talked about sowing the seed and plowing the field. He was a, an artisan, a workman, and a builder who harvested trees from wilderness and orchard and talked to us about grafting and, and uh, uh, trying to prune trees to be fruitful. And yet also trees that had to be removed and the trees that would be used. That with his hands... He who created the mountains was hewing rocks and laying a wall. And one who in time to come would suffer unspeakable, just the physical pain alone of having nails driven through his hands and feet. He's pounding iron nails with an iron hammer in the days of his labor. And then, of course, the image of Jesus as a carpenter builder shouldering a crossbeam for a home that he's working on. And yet... In time to come, he will be saddled with a cross to bear. So Jesus grew up in this town. He was known, his family was known, and he knew people there. But there's something I want you to pay attention to in verse 3. He's also called not only the carpenter, but also the son of Mary. Now it's very curious here that Joseph is not mentioned. Remember, these are the people that are speaking and say, we know who this guy is. We know he's the carpenter. Matthew says that they said he was the son of the carpenter. But both Matthew and Mark reference that he, the people said he was the son of Mary and they didn't mention Joseph. Luke's account does mention Joseph. So this is what I think. I think that on a previous visit where Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, Joseph was still alive. And people referenced that Jesus was the son of Joseph the carpenter. They knew him. He grew up there. And they knew Joseph and his trade and his work and the neighbors there. I think on this next visit or this last visit to Nazareth where Jesus is also preaching and, and proclaiming the gospel and revealing his claim as the Son of God and as the one who came to bring the kingdom of God, I think that now they, they are scorning Jesus and they do it in a particular way of an insult against his mother Mary. Now, some scholars propose that identifying mother by name, Mary, is this not the son of Mary? And not by father, is not this the son of Joseph or the son of Joseph and Mary? That some scholars, and I think they are right, propose that this is a way of scornfully insulting Jesus by questioning the legitimacy of his birth. Don't think for a moment. They can name the brothers and the sisters. They reference the brothers by name and say the sisters are, of that family are still living here among us. Don't think, don't, do not think for a moment that they don't remember who Joseph is. I believe this is a scornful intent. It's too obvious. 
John tells us in chapter 8 and 9 that one of the circulating gossips was that Jesus was illegitimate. You know that Joseph was actually struggling with that when he found out that Mary was expecting, and he knew he wasn't the father, but the angel of the Lord revealed to him what was going on. And Joseph was a just man, believed God. And he took Mary to be his wife, and he, he, he raised Jesus, and then Joseph and Mary had other children. This is very clearly told to us in Scripture. They're named for us. So there's some powerful things here that we need to consider. And I believe that what was intentional here is that after Joseph's death, Jesus returning to Nazareth and preaching the kingdom of God and identifying himself in the the gospel, the great good tidings of the kingdom of God, that with hardness of heart, the word is choked out and insults began to be surfaced trying to discredit Jesus. They go on to say, we know the brothers of this family, James and Joseph and Judas and uh, Simon, they give these names and they say that even the sisters are still living here. Presumably they were married and lived in Nazareth, even though it seems that, that Mary and Jesus' brothers maybe moved to Capernaum and followed uh, Jesus around some in his ministry. We have some other record of that. If you'll remember previously in the Gospel of Mark, we were told that. But here's what we need to focus on. Jesus was born from Mary by a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit of God to be the God-man incarnate. That's why we confess the uh, the, uh, Nicene Creed this morning. He is really God and truly human, but without a father from Adam, thus not inheriting original sin's condition and guilt. But after Jesus, the children born to Joseph and Mary were born by natural procreation. And they, like all other humans, you and me included, descend from Adam and Eve and are born in the condition and the guilt of original sin. Mary needed Jesus as her Savior, even though she was the vessel of the Lord who bore Him into this life in that great miracle and wonder of the Incarnation. The other children that were born to Joseph, Joseph was a just man, not by his own righteousness, but by the imputed righteousness of the one he raised in his own home and confessed and believed him to be the chosen one of God. Jesus' brothers and sisters grew up with him, hearing who he was. He began his public ministry. And we're told that even Mary and Jesus' brothers had some doubts and were disturbed and troubled and thought, he's lost his mind, we need to get him out of here. But later on we read, at least of of, uh, James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, who followed him. James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem and wrote an epistle that we call by his name. And, and Jude also wrote an epistle that we call by his name. We're not told about the other brothers and, and sisters of Jesus. I mean, it's my hope and, and I guess I just say it's my hope that they too came to believe and to accept the one whom they had grown up knowing as older brother in a greater capacity of truest brother, the brother of the Savior of their souls. So we read as we come to the end of verse 3 that these local hometown folks were offended at Jesus. So it would seem that most of Jesus' hometown people were wrapped up in the scandalizing gossip in order to reject the gospel. 
It must be that the message by which Jesus proclaimed the great tidings of the kingdom of God, the preaching by which Jesus commanded repentance from sin, and the authority that Jesus claimed to forgive sins, caused a crisis of faith tragically resolved in rejection of the gospel, the rejection of Jesus in unbelief. And so we read in verse 4, Jesus' proverb about a prophet dishonored in his, among his own people. And I want you to understand this proverb in verse 4 is a general truism. It's based on experience, and it's not a universal truth. We need to recognize you know, uh, figures of speech and the way they're used in the Bible and in the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus here is making a general truism. And I say this is not a universal truth. Uh, here's what a universal truth would be. Murdering a prophet is wrong, and decorating the prophet's tomb doesn't make murdering him right. You see, that's a universal truth. But when Jesus is saying here, look, a prophet is not honored among his own people in his own town and even in his own family, he's giving a general truism uh, of dismay, really, about what was going on in Nazareth. But Jesus does identify himself as a prophet of God, the prophet of God. And that's the reason for him not being received and celebrated uh, by his hometown people and his family members. Because he's claiming to be a prophet of God. You see, if Jesus had been a person of worldly fame, if he had come representing he'd gone away and made a fortune, he would have come back with celebrity and with notoriety. And he would have been honored if he had been a rich merchant who was returning. If he was a victorious gladiator, a celebrated orator, or a popular Olympian coming back home. So the purpose of the proverb is to reveal what people really treasure the most. Jesus went back to his hometown and his home people and even in his family as the God-man. As the servant of the Lord. As the Savior the messenger of the covenant, the anointed one of God. He preached the word of God in the synagogue. We can get an idea of what Jesus preached from what his previous preaching had been in chapters 1 through 5. Repent, the kingdom of God has come. I am the son of man, and I have authority on earth to forgive sins. The demonstrated power which these people referenced of the, the stories they had heard of the, the mighty works that he did with his own hands, healing the sick, raising the dead. But their hearts were hardened and the word was choked out and Jesus was dishonored in their midst. And then we go to verses 5 and 6 where Jesus refuses to entertain scornful unbelievers. He's not going to put on a show for them. He will not vindicate his reputation or even his earthly family's name if they were indeed questioning his birth and if they were scornfully insulting Mary. That just sets us on edge, doesn't it? But Jesus will not vindicate his reputation or his earthly family name by profaning the mission that God has called him to do, his greater Father in heaven. But he is always seeking out and saving his lost sheep. And that's what I want you to see in verses 5 and 6. Now, the first part of verse 5 can be a little uh, off-putting for us in the English translation where it says, Now he, 
could do no mighty works there. And when we read that he could do no mighty works there, I think we get the wrong idea of kind of a mistaken cause and effect idea. That ipso facto, because of people's unbelief, that affects inability in God. But this is not the meaning of the text. The meaning of the text expresses self-will or volition on Jesus' part. Uh, more literally translated would be, and not he himself was enabled. In other words, volitioning, willfully, Jesus purpose Jesus willed that he would not do mighty works apart from faith just to satisfy their curiosity as a matter of fact Matthew puts it this way now he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief so this is not a cause and effect thing that because people were unbelieving Jesus couldn't do anything all he could do is wring his hands and 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 whine and say oh they don't believe in me I can't do anything that's a foolish attempt to discredit Jesus What strongly is indicated here is that Jesus put his pride aside. Jesus even put the reputation of his mother aside to say, I will not entertain you in your unbelief. I'm not here to be your clown. I'm your Savior. The next part of the verse, the second part of verse 5, supports Jesus' volitional action, showing that he was not unable to act and that he intentionally healed and saved Even a few whom he would not lose that the Father gave to him. When we're told that in the second part of verse 5, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. The contrast here is with the few. We have seen and we'll see again vast multitudes coming out to Jesus. We've heard far and wide of his healing many. And here we're told he would not entertain the unbelievers, but he would not lose even the few whom the Father had given to him. He acted willfully and volitionally in fulfilling the Father's will. So by the incarnation, Jesus experienced real human sensations and emotions. Isn't that a challenge to us? To to recognize the true, full humanity of Jesus Christ and yet without sin. Without sin, Jesus experienced human sensations and emotions. Without sin, Jesus was hungry and thirsty. Without sin, Jesus got angry. Without sin, Jesus cried. Without sin, Jesus showed uh, affection. Without sin, Jesus rebuked and called people foolish. So without sin, Jesus experienced real human sensation and emotions So with a real natural familiarity, he was sadly shocked over the unbelief of his hometown folks. I'd be honest with you, I I just about um, lose my composure (laughs) when I I read verse 6. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. With a natural familiarity, Jesus was sadly shocked over the unbelief of his hometown folks, people who he grew up knowing and people who knew him. And I know this registers with us in many ways. We have family members, extended family members. We have acquaintances and friends. Some of them have been lifelong work companions and friends who are unbelievers. And it's a sad shock to us that they are blind and stone-hearted dead 
to the love of Jesus. It's hard, isn't it? With a natural familiarity, those are the people we know. We have a a natural affection for them. They're friends. They're family members. We love them. Sometimes we get along better with them than we do with even our own Christian brothers and sisters sometimes. But they're unsaved and they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And we're astonished that the people we're so familiar with reject in unbelief Jesus as Savior. So verse 6 concludes with a strong statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ in conflict with unbelief in this sinful world. Because it doesn't tell us that it was left there that Jesus was just astonished at their unbelief. What does it go on to say? That Jesus went about the villages in a circuit teaching. It didn't stop him continuing on in the mission that God had given him. He was not stunned into despair, doubt, or dismissal. Though Jesus was saddened and astonished at their unbelief, being stunned in his emotions that way, he did not give in to despair and say, well, what's the use? The people I love, the people that know me, the people who have known me the, lo- the longest are rejecting me. What hope is there for others? Or into doubt. Well, maybe, maybe I really don't know what I'm doing. These people know me. They, my own family says I'm a madman. Maybe there's something off here. Or dismissal. I can't do this anymore. If people are going to reject me, if people are going to be mean, if people are going to slander my mother, I can't do this anymore. Jesus didn't give in to any of that. Jesus went on about the villages in a circuit teaching. And you see, that's what we are to understand from this lesson of the Lord Jesus. The lesson that the gospel is the victory that overcomes unbelief in the world. I know it's hard-hearted. I know it's heartbreaking when there are people that we love by natural affection so much and they have no interest in the gospel. And there are others around that we may have a passing acquaintance with who embrace the gospel. There was a prophet of God that really struggled with that. His name was Jonah. And God taught him a heartbreaking lesson that You must love the people of God and the people whom God redeems. They are your new and true family. Doesn't mean we don't have heartbreaking affection for our natural family and associates. But it means God comes first. And the power of the gospel comes first. And when when Jesus left Nazareth for the last time, He left the gospel there and gospel witnesses. But He went on in a circuit, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God and calling people to repentance and faith. And that's what we must do. Perhaps we too are shocked to read about the gospel's rejection by those most naturally expected to receive it, having had so much connection with Jesus' early life. He lived there for maybe around 30 years. But the faithful preaching of the kingdom of heaven turns the world upside down. And it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, even in our natural affections to our own kinfolks first, but also for all peoples of the world. This is what Peter preached. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God would call. And so we don't know who God is calling. 
We can pray. We pray for the call of God. I never back up from giving the open call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some who who think because of reformed doctrine or because of the belief in election that somehow we have to stymie the open call of the gospel. I say all, all the more we shout it louder because we're assured as many as the Lord our God will call near and far. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. It is the victory that overcomes the world. And I hope you too will be encouraged and founded in these stories of Jesus. Straight talk about Jesus Christ and the great glad news of the gospel in every generation around all the world. We'll continue next week uh, going on in the next story in uh, Mark chapter 6. Our concluding and parting here.